Thank you for joining us today. We'll conclude our study of the first epistle of Peter. We'll discuss the role of elders in the church and the appreciation we should have for pastors, elders, and teachers whose job it is to equip us for our own ministries. Yes, God intends that we each have a ministry, and today's lesson should help you begin to think more about your own ministry serving the Lord. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the first epistle of Peter, chapter 5, we'll begin our lesson. Let me open this up in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this day and for this group and the ability to gather together here in this office in downtown Austin. And I also just want to thank you for our church leadership that you've given us, our elders as we study that today, our pastors, our teachers. I just thank you so much for putting them in our life. And I thank you for giving us all this group that we can gather together and study your word. And I just ask that you guide our discussion today. Let it be your words, not mine. And continue to transform us and give us the heart that we need to have so that we can be good ambassadors for you here. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are finishing up 1 Peter this morning. We are in 1 Peter chapter 5. And I'll just start right in. And it begins in verse 1. Therefore... And by now, you always know when it says, therefore, you got to figure out what it's there for. And what he's referring to here is everything that we've been studying in 1 Peter so far. And that is that Christ suffered and died for us. We saw that over in 1 Peter 3, verse 18. It says, Christ died for our sins once and for all, the just for the unjust. So he suffered greatly to pay the penalty for our sin. So he's referring to that, and he's also referring to all that we discussed previously about our own suffering and our own trials that we go through on earth here. And God uses those trials and tribulations and tests that we go through to continue to knock off our rough edges, knock off the things that aren't Christ-like to make us more Christ-like. So that's what he's referring to. Therefore, everything that we talked about over the last four weeks or so, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you. So he's going to talk about the elders. These are the elders of the church. This is the spiritual leadership of the church. And I just want to refer you very quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but on the requirements for an elder, just so you know, this is really the way God intends for churches to be organized. You have the church leadership of the elders that are there to lead and oversee the congregation. And so let me take you over to 1 Timothy 3. That's over to the left. It's over on the other side of Hebrews, and you'll find it. 1 Timothy chapter 3, here's the qualifications for an elder of the church. I'll begin in verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, or your translation may say elder, that's what it's referring to, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert. So this is someone who would be mature in their faith. 
lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. And then I'll show you another place where it's very similar, but let's go over to Titus. We were studying Titus recently. Titus chapter 1, just go to the right. Titus is after Timothy, after 2 Timothy. Titus 1, and I'll begin in verse 5. And this is Paul writing, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So Paul is leaving, and he's saying, Now that I'm leaving, I want you to appoint elders in each of the churches. And he's going to give the requirements for the elder. Namely, if any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer, the elder, must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So those are some of the requirements for an elder. And as I was preparing for this lesson today, what kept coming into my vision as I thought about the requirements for an elder, I think Joel Franklin, who is part of our group here in Austin, He's an elder. I just think Joel is a great example of what an elder truly should be. I feel so blessed to call Joel my friend, and I've seen him at work as an elder in his church at Wells Branch. He really exemplifies what an elder should be, and we're going to read a little bit more today, but I just want to tell you, Joel, thank you so much for what you do, not only for your congregation, but for us as a group as well as me personally. You're a huge encourager to me personally. So thank you for what you do. Amen. Yep. Great we all job. said amen. Amen. Thank you, Joel. So I go back to the text. I'm back over in First Peter 5, verse 1. He says, I exhort the elders among you, and he says, as your fellow elder. So Peter was an elder of the church. And it's interesting here that Peter doesn't call attention to the fact that he's an apostle. He's not even claiming that. He's just saying, look, I'm a co-equal, I'm a fellow elder, and I'm exhorting the other elders. He's going to say what he wants them to do here in a minute. But I find that fascinating, that here Peter, the rock of the church, he's saying, look, I'm just a fellow elder of the church. And he says he's also a witness of the sufferings of Christ, which we, again, studied earlier in prior lessons in First Peter. And he says, He's also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Peter could be talking about the transfiguration. Remember, Peter was present at the transfiguration where he saw the glory of God, and he knows that is going to be revealed to all of us in Christ's second coming. He also may be talking about the eternal reward that he will see. That's also glory that will be revealed that he will receive and others will receive for their faithful service for the Lord. Now he's going to continue on in verse 2 to talk about what elders are to do, where he's saying exhort, he's urging them, he's encouraging them to do the following. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, 
So it's not our flock. It's not Joel's flock. It's God's flock that they are to shepherd. Not under compulsion, so not because nobody else would do it and they're forcing you to do it, but it's voluntary according to the will of God. It's because God has called you to do that. And it's interesting that Peter uses the term shepherd. Obviously, we know that Jesus called us sheep all the time. And as you remember, sheep are the most stupid of all the animals you know, that are around us. They get lost very easy. They're defenseless. And it's interesting that we are referred to as sheep because that is us. We get lost very easily. We get messed up easily. And that's what the elders are there to try to help us and direct us back onto the right path. And that's what he's saying. He's saying elders exercise oversight and lead the congregation in a way where you can help them and bring glory to God. So they're to do it without compulsion, voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain. So you're doing your duty not for money. It's not for popularity. It's not for status. That's not why you're doing it. But you do it with eagerness. And he goes on in verse 3, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge. So you don't rule over them. You're not there to oppress them or be domineering over them. You're there to try to shepherd them, to try to help them, help them grow in their faith, mature in their faith. It's really being a servant leader. That's what it's all about. And you remember we've looked at the key verse, I think, on servant leadership before. I'll take you over there. I'm not going to read it all to you today. That's not the intent of the lesson today. But Matthew 20, verse 25 is where it begins. I think some of the key verses on servant leadership, it says, Jesus called them to himself. Well, let me set this up. First of all, you've got two of the disciples that are arguing over who's the best, and they want to be seated at the left hand and right hand of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. And so Jesus takes the opportunity here to call all of his disciples together. And he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. So he's talking about the typical leadership model that we see in our culture today. You rise to the level of leadership and now you're in control, you're in charge, everyone else is there to serve you. At least that's what you think. That's the model. I would guess that every one of us has worked before for a leader that was like that, that everyone under the leader's charge was there to serve them and help propel the leader to wherever he or she was trying to get to. But look what Jesus says in verse 26. It is not to be so among you. Okay, so I think he's saying he doesn't want Christians to use this typical top-down leadership model as leaders He says, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. So he expects us to be servant leaders, and that is with a view, just like he's describing these elders, that we are to serve everyone else, that we are there to help the people who are under our charge as leaders, to help them mature, help them grow, help them in their careers, help them grow in their faith. We're there to serve them. Going back to the text, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, so not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. That's what elders are called to do, and that's what we're called to do. 
It's a selfless servant that's committed to sacrifice and do the will of God to serve others. And you're not doing it for material, worldly purposes. You do it willingly, and you're motivated really by the high calling and the honor that God has given you. Let me show you another verse, Matthew 25, 23. It's just a little bit over from where we were in Matthew. And I'm not going to read all this to you either. Here, Jesus is giving this parable And it's what people have done with the talents that they have been given. But the lesson is really, what are we doing with the opportunities that we've been given? And at the end, it says in verse 23 of Matthew 25, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And that's what we should all be working towards, that when we get to heaven, to hear that from Jesus, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in the opportunities I gave you, so now I'm going to give you even more responsibility in the kingdom. That's what we should all be working towards, not stature or status among our peers because of where we are. That is true servant leadership. Okay, let's go back over to the text that we're studying, 1 Peter 5. I'm in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, so this is Jesus' second coming, that's what this is referring to, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So again, elders, pastors, teachers, we're all accountable to God for our ministry. Let me show you, a. you don't have to go over there, but if you go to James, which is just before Peter, James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. Even what I do, I take this very seriously, this teaching that I do each Tuesday with you all. That's why I spend so much time preparing for it every week. I take it seriously, and I'm going to have to appear before Jesus, and I'm sure there's going to be some lessons. He's going to say, what in the world were you thinking? That's not what that says. I hope I don't get it wrong, but that's why I study so diligently because I don't want to lead anyone astray. Hebrews 13, 7, and it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So there it is right there. I mean, pastors, our church leaders, our elders, we are called to obey them and submit to them, but they are going to have to give an account to Jesus on how they were a good shepherd and steward the flock that was given to them. So I know Joel takes that seriously. I can tell you I take it seriously. But at the same time, it's an incredible honor that God has given us to do what we do. And I'm so thankful of the training that he put me through at seminary to enable me to do what I do with this group and in my ministry. Okay, so let's go back to the text. Now Peter is going to turn his focus. He was talking about elders. Now he's going to talk about younger men in the congregation. Let's pick up in verse 5. He says, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So what's he talking about here? He's really talking about the less mature in their spirituality, you know, in their faith. He's talking about young folks You know, a lot of times when we were all younger, I know I was that way. We're more hard-headed. We think we know it all. And it really is hard to be humble. We probably even see it now in some of our kids. 
They look at us like we're old farts and we don't understand. We don't know anything. Times have changed and that's how they look at us. And what Peter is saying is, look, you really need to respect your elders. They've been through a lot and they know a lot and hopefully they've matured in their faith and they can help you and guide you. I heard one commentator say, he was talking to a friend. It was a young friend. He said, you know, it was interesting. When I was in high school and college, I thought my dad was a complete idiot, you know, just a total fool. And I went off to college and then I hadn't seen him for a couple of years because I ended up getting a job out of town and I hadn't seen him for a while. And I came back and I was shocked because I really hadn't spent that much time with my dad in about six years. And I came back and like, man, he really got wisdom over the last six years. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, I think he probably had the wisdom already. It was that now you actually appreciate his wisdom. And it's so true. We see that with our kids. And we were that way too. So we can't fault them. I know I was that way. Okay, so let's go back. We're still in verse 5. I'll just read it again to get the context. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Be humble. And what he's talking about here is be humble and acknowledge your sin and your need for Jesus. And we should all thank Jesus for his grace and what he did for us. Just think of where we would be had he not done that. Let me show you this one over here. 1 Thessalonians 5.12. Thessalonians is just go on the other side of Hebrews and keep going to the left. And it is just before Timothy. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, it says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. We need to be thankful to our pastors, our elders, our teachers. They serve an incredible role. Yes, they're honored that God called them into that role. But our pastors and our elders and our teachers, they spend so much time trying to shepherd us. And we as the sheep are not easily herded up from time to time. A lot of times we're straying off, we're lost, we don't know what we're doing, and they're there for us. And we should be so thankful that God has called them to their roles for them to shepherd us. And I'm so thankful for you, Chris, as well. We thank Joel before you got here, and we're thankful to you. You're some of our pastors, but you're also here part of this group and appreciate the encouragement that you give all of us. Okay, go back over to First Peter. I'm in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. So know that when we're going through trials that we've talked about throughout First Peter, we need to just always remember that God's in control and we need to trust him. We shouldn't ever feel like we're being treated unfairly, although that may be the first step that we usually go to when things don't go our way. It's like this isn't fair. God has a plan, and he's going to use whatever it is that we're going through in a very positive way to help us, and there will be rewards either in this life or in eternity as we mature and get through those trials that we go through. Verse 7, he says, cast all your anxiety upon him. So that means we shouldn't be discouraged. 
We shouldn't despair. We shouldn't be questioning. We should cast all of that onto Jesus. And why? He says, because he cares for you. Jesus loves us. Jesus died for us. He wants the best for us. And he's in control. And so whatever we're going through, there's a purpose to it. We might not even totally understand it even in this life, but there is something good that he wants to do through it. And I go back to what we've said over the last several weeks. When we're going through something, don't ask why, ask what. What is Jesus trying to teach us through whatever we're going through? Verse 8, be of sober spirit. So that means have self-control, not intoxicated. Be on the alert. So we are to be watchful, stay aware, be vigilant. And why is that? He says, your adversary, the devil, that's Satan, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Satan hates God. He hates us. He is our enemy, and he wants to destroy us just like a predator. That's what he's being described here as, this roaring lion. He doesn't just want to injure us. John 10.10 says what Satan's mission is is to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he wants to do. And when you go over to Revelation 12, 17, you'll see he's gathering up anybody he can to go after the people who believe in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's doing currently. And you can look around the world. Satan does his work through other human beings. And there are many, many, many instruments of Satan all around us. You can see him in our government today. You can see him in our schools You can even see them in our churches. They're all around us. Sometimes we get frustrated with what's going on. And if we just will recall that this is Satan working. And why do we expect people who are instruments of Satan to function as Christians? We're the ones messed up. I'm going to bring this up now. I was going to bring it up later, but it's on my heart now. A bunch of us were at a conference on Friday, and we listened to Andy Stanley was one of the speakers And he had a fantastic talk. What I took away from that talk as I reflected on it more even over the weekend and as I prepared for this lesson today, there is such divide now in our culture. There's divide between Democrats and Republicans. You look all around us. There's corruption in our government. There's corruption everywhere. There's evil everywhere. There's evil in the world You can look at these countries, Russia, China, Iran, others, evil, evil, evil. There's evil in our country. There's evil in our government. There's terrible things going on everywhere. And I know this group from time to time prays for our country. But what really hit me from his talk is I think sometimes we're getting focused on the wrong battle. There's nothing in here where Jesus is calling us to rebel or straighten out our nation or our country or our government. We are to pray for our government leaders. We're to pray for them. But the battle is to win hearts and souls for the kingdom. That's the battle. And that's the battle that Satan is trying to win. He's trying to pull everybody over to his side, away from God. And our battle is to fight the battle of spreading the gospel and getting people where they place their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the battle. And for us to be so focused on trying to save our country, go vote. I'm not telling you not to vote. But if you think that getting a new group in in November 
is going to totally change everything and save us, you're fighting the wrong battle. That ain't going to happen, okay? Don't make that the priority, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. That's what I took away from Andy Stanley's talk was I think sometimes we're getting all wrapped around the axle about the politics and the culture and all the things that Satan is working through, through our country and our culture and our schools and even some of our churches. We should be focused on the people that are lost as opposed to whatever government nonsense that's going on. Because all we hear on TV and from the government is lies. It's all lies. And who's the father of lies? Satan. Okay? So we can't expect them to act like Christians. So forget about it. All right? Don't let that be the priority. The question is, what are you doing that God wants you to do to build the kingdom? That needs to be our focus. Anyway, it really hit me hard. I've thought about that all weekend. I thought his talk was great, and if there was some way you all could hear it, I wish you could. It'll probably come out somewhere. It was powerful. Anybody else that was there? I know a bunch of you were there. He has a book on it. It's called Not In It To Win It. Yeah. Not In It To Win It. Exactly. He mentioned that. He's and been preaching that forever. It was powerful. So I'd encourage all of us to think about where is our focus? Are we focused on the real battle? Are we being deceived and focused on the little skirmishes in the country? And this country is not our home. America is going to be gone. It's the heavenly kingdom. That's what we need to be focused on. And what are we doing to build that kingdom? That's where our priorities need to be. All right, back to the text. Good point. So, Larry, that's kind of a segue of something I'm thinking about here. You're talking about what we need to focus on forward, but this passage is really also saying, but we got to stay alert, right? we got to stay prepared because there are forces that are looking to trip us up. And you mentioned a lot of external forces, but my eye was drawn back up to the verse right above about God opposes the proud. And so that pride is a huge tool of the devil. That's a kind of an internal thing. And I was just sitting here thinking, and then fear is another one. And my wife is always quick to remind me that fear is one of the devil's best tools. That's right. So we've got to be alert to those internal risk factors as well. And that's why he says in verse 7, cast your fears onto him. Mm -hmm. All right? If you're fearful, then you're not trusting God. It's that simple. And we all go through it. I'm not saying we don't all have fear. But if we can remember when we are having fear, that means we're not trusting God. And that's when Satan loves to use that. He'll use that as a wedge. Can you help balance me out a little bit? My friend whose son was killed in action serving our country. Was that for not? No, absolutely not. I mean, if that's what he was called to do and Chris served in the military, whatever role you've been called to do, do it. Chris was called to serve in the military. Yet at the same time, he was an ambassador for Jesus Christ on the battlefield. No, I'm not saying that at all. Serve the role that you've been called to do. But focus on the kingdom as your priority is what I'm trying to say. piece of First Peter is he constantly refers to the exiles, like you are exiles. This specific scripture is saying you are an ambassador, kind of going to 2 Corinthians 5, you are an ambassador representing the kingdom of God. So the, you're a patriot of the kingdom of God. Now that might mean you serve the country that you're at for whatever purpose, but ultimately the, the greater kingdom that you're serving is the kingdom of God. 
And I think that becomes the ultimate thing. That way Christians can be on opposite sides of looking out for the welfare of the city. Like, I feel like we should really serve the poor, and so we should do that with government money. I feel like we should really teach responsibility, and we should do that with, like, the government power. And so you've got two people from the same kingdom vying against each other, looking out for the welfare of the city. I think that's okay. That's actually, I think that's, that's completely fine, but you have to do it in brotherly love. And I think the whole aspect of this is when you become someone to devour, it's when you're not united and you've let the divisiveness of trying to be in it to win it to get my side to win as opposed to let the kingdom of God win. That's ultimately where you're going to find demise. God is very clear about those who cause division among the brethren. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He claims that there are things that God hates, but he says division among the brethren is an abomination. And I think that's the struggle, the post-COVID era. The reason why people are leaving churches is because they're so divided. And so then people are like, you know what, I'll just watch church online so I have to deal with those people. Well, now that you don't have to deal with those people, you're not engaging in the love one another, which is what the whole thing is all about. And so we've said, I'm going to separate myself from those people because they clearly are wrong and sinful and dark. And the battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual force of the dark. We all know all that. But when the person comes in a sense of someone that might have a different view on some sort of political issue, it, that's what creates some sort of huge divide, and it, it's a beating. And that's where all the focus is now yeah. in our culture. It's all save the country and fighting like, each other and who's right and who's wrong and save the country. And I mean, I feel like uh, we're at that point of Rome when you know, the city of God dies. You know, like that's the in Augustine when he wrote when during the fall of Rome. I mean, it's going to happen. D.C. is going to fall at some point. And I don't know if that's next year or 50 years or 70 years, but there is no United States of American revelation. It's just, it's done. So I think that when we put our hope in our country and we need to get back to the good old days, we are missing out on the kingdom of God's progress forward to expand kingdom, push back darkness, all that. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. No, but that's the point. I was not there on Friday when Stanley, but I have thought that way for years. Because every man that's in this room and those who are on the phone need to know that we are all in full-time ministry. Mm-hmm. All of us. Amen. That is the call upon our life because God chose us before the foundation of the world. We are all in full-time ministry. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some other things that we do, whether it's an attorney whether it's insurance, whether it's waste management, whether it's education, whether it's medical doctor, whatever it is, finance, whatever it is. That is, I don't have a better term, that's your side hustle. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) You're in full-time ministry. That's it. That's what you're in. That's what we are in. Full-time ministry. Not just Chris, not just Larry. Not just Andy Stanley, not just David Jeremiah, not just Judas Smith. We are all in full-time ministry. And when you look at it that way, it changes the way you see life. And the people that we come in contact with every day, we are all in it. And so then the question is, how's your ministry? How is your ministry? Mm-hmm. That's the question. How's your ministry? Mm-hmm. Needs improvement. Every day. Every day. Every day. Okay. Uh, This is going to be a little convicting today. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Larry. Let's go back. I think we are in verse 9. But resist him, that's the devil, 
firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So what we're going through, whatever it is, there's others who are suffering just like we are. It's not that we're the only ones or whatever we're going through is unique. It's not at all. We're all being attacked by Satan everywhere. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time, but he does have a pretty big army. And by the way, I've mentioned this before. We don't have power over Satan or demons. We don't. Sometimes I hear people, even in prayers or what have you, trying to command Satan to do something. We don't have that power. But Jesus Christ has that power. And the Holy Spirit has that power. Jesus has already won the battle. Satan is a big deceiver. He's a liar. But by prayer and by studying Scripture and by calling on the Holy Spirit, then we can resist the devil. It's not us. We're relying on the Holy Spirit to help us. That's what we have to remember. We can stand firm in our faith. The battle, as Chris said, is a spiritual one. It's in the supernatural realm. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit to give us the power to help us through that. I just want to add a little bit more to what Joel was saying. And I'll read it to you. It's Ephesians 4, and I'm over in verse 11. It says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So that's the role of Chris and Joel. And why? For the equipping of the saints, that's us. Saints means all believers. Their job is to equip us as believers for what? For the work of service to the building up the body of Christ. That's our job. So if you didn't like me saying, how's your ministry going? (laughs) And if you can't even think of your ministry, you got a problem. You're you're not doing what the Bible calls us to do. When we come to this Bible study every week, I'm hoping that I am equipping you, not me, the Holy Spirit working through me to equip you. We ought to leave here. We ought to leave our church on Sunday to go out and have our ministry. How are we ministering to others? So I just wanted to kind of add on to what Joel was saying. Okay, let's go back over to the text, verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 5. And after you have suffered for a little while, remember, our lifetime is very small when compared or viewed against eternity. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect. So perfect means restore or bring to wholeness. Confirm means to set fast, strengthen, and establish you. So we will see his glory. We will get to participate in his glory. That's what that's saying. Verse 11, to just close this out. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Jesus will dominate the universe. Everything is under his control. Verse 12, through Silvanus and your text may say Silas that's who this is our faithful brother for so I regard him I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God stand firm in it I'll talk about Silas in just a minute we talked about him a little bit when we were in chapter one but Peter's saying that his work on this letter is inspired by God and it's from God and we'll spend some time talking about this next week when we get over into Second Peter chapter 1, which says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretations. 
For no prophecy was ever made by an account of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I'll spend more time talking about that. But Peter is saying that what he's written is the true word of God, and it was given to him by God. So we should stay firm in our faith. We should believe what Peter is saying. Verse 13, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And we talked about that at length when we were in chapter 1, so I'm not going to spend time on that here. There are some people that think he's referring Babylon as a reference to Rome, which is what I think as well. There's others that say, no, he's actually referring to Babylon. If you want more on that, go listen to the lesson. I won't spend time on that here. The word she likely refers to the church of Christians, probably in Rome. And he says, and so does my son Mark. And this is John Mark. This is who wrote the gospel of Mark. They were in a close relationship, but John Mark is not his actual son. Now, a little bit about John Mark, because this is interesting. You may remember when we were studying Acts, you can go look in Acts chapter 15. It's around verse 31. Mark was a young disciple, and he was accompanying Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And things got a little rough. For whatever reason, Mark deserted them. Mark left. And then when Paul was getting ready to go on his second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas got in a big dispute over Mark. Paul said, I'm not taking him. He deserted us on the first one. I'm not taking him again. And Barnabas said, nope, we ought to take him. And they ended up splitting up. And that's when then Paul took Silas with him and Barnabas took Mark. And actually God even used that in a way because now they had two missionary journeys going. So God used even their dispute in a positive way. But eventually Paul and Mark made up. You can look at that in 2 Timothy 4.11. Mark is now with Peter. Mark is serving Peter and doing well. And Barnabas was one of these guys that took people under his wing and poured into him and helped Mark develop. Here he is with Peter. Verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. They did that back then. It was a sign of love, sort of a cheek-to-cheek kind of thing. And then he says, peace be to you all who are in Christ. So to just summarize what we discussed today, we as Christians have an obligation to respect and follow our godly pastoral leadership and our elders. They're going to have to give an account on how they lead us and how they lead the flock, but we are to respect them and we should express our appreciation to them for what they do for us. We should show humble respect for other Christians, put their interest ahead of our own. That's what servant leadership is all about. We should serve others. We spent some time talking about Satan. He is a spiritual being. He's active. He's in active rebellion right now against God. He'd love to do anything to get us off track. He's going to attack us, he and his demons. They want to destroy us. For us, with prayer and scripture and trust in God and God's power and trusting in the Holy Spirit, we can resist Satan and his army. God can be trusted. He's there when we're going through difficult times. He's there when we're going through our trials and what have you. And he wants to make each one of those into something good. And he wants us to grow and learn through those. And if we can just remember that when we're going through difficult times. 
We should each ask what we can give to ministry rather than what we get out of it. There's so many people that go to church on Sunday and go, well, I didn't get much out of that. Well, what did you bring to it? And what are you giving to ministry? It's not about what we can get out of it. It's what we can actually give to ministry. Where is our ministry? I'd encourage each of you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to show you what your ministry is. He's got a ministry for you. Are you living into it? We should be an encouragement to others. And I would ask that we all be more of an encouragement to even our own pastors. I know we go to different churches. Our pastors and elders, seek them out and thank them for what they do. We shouldn't be prideful. We should be humble people. We shouldn't be self-sufficient. That's what our culture really values. And that is not what we're called to be. We're called to be humble. And we're called to really rely on the Holy Spirit and trust in God rather than ourselves. And finally, I'd just say, to wrap this whole thing up, this whole book of First Peter, man, we should be so thankful for what Jesus Christ has done for us. The suffering that he went through, the just for the unjust, the price he paid just for us, just to save us. He truly does love us. And I think if we can keep that perspective in mind, I think we'll be in a much better position to be able to serve others. So with that, what other thoughts or comments might you have this morning? You know, one thing that resonates with me, Larry, is that you said that all of, all of the leaders and the teachers are going to have to have an accounting. And I just sit there and think about these teachers that are, you know, you constantly refer to the black highlighter. Hmm. If they're going to have an accounting, how are they going to, and they're going to have to account for the black highlighter. <laughs> That seems to me that, I mean, they have to be thinking about that. Well, I don't think they're thinking about it, is the whole point. It's up to God. Are they really believers or are they really false teachers that have been placed there by Satan? That'll be determined later. If they are true believers and are just misguided, well, yeah, they're going to have a really difficult performance review. <laughs> but it's it just, not going to go well. It just fascinates me that if they go to seminary, they have to be reading this stuff. Well, seminaries don't group all seminaries in one bucket. Yeah. That's for sure. Because Chris and I can both tell you that there are seminaries that teach. I mean, they provide the black highlighters. Yeah. So, uh, they will, yeah. will show you. People. So basically, their interpretation of what you just read is different than. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can show you commentaries and yeah. volumes of commentaries that would be completely totally different from what i'm telling you that's why there's different churches that's why there's different denominations that's why there's different religions yeah they take this and the stuff that doesn't fit their theology they just leave out or they say that's not really what that says and then you've got some that will actually rewrite it i mean there are i'll call them more cults than anything that have taken the Bible and totally changed the words in certain areas that they don't want it to read that way. So you've got to be careful what you're reading, and you really have to be careful what you read on the Internet. <laughs> you've got to make sure that whatever you're reading is from a reliable source. Because they can make it sound very, lack of a better term, theological, but it is false. It's very false. And that's why when I go through this, I try to point out, I know sometimes it sounds like I'm not being very nice to Catholics. And it's not that I'm not being nice. I'm trying to help 
I know there's Catholics who listen to this. And I was taught all the same things that they were taught. There were some really good things I was taught. It's not all terrible, but I was also taught a lot of non-biblical doctrine. And I try to point that out to people because it's not in the Bible. In fact, some places it's actually counter to what the Bible says. I'm only pointing that out out of love. And when I see it, you know, it might be something the Lutherans believe or something, you know, somebody else believes. I'm going to point it out. It doesn't mean everybody that goes to that church or is part of that denomination is Satan or not a Christian. There's Christians in every one of those. There's Christians in the Catholic Church. There's also non-Christians, non-believers in my church, in your church, in the Protestant church. There's lots of unbelievers there. So I'm just trying to help people understand what the Bible says. It isn't what I said. It's what God's given us. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.